Hello, everyone. This is the American Exception Podcast, and I'm Aaron Good. Today, we are going to be talking with Max Good about the inscrutable Ruth Payne, the woman who took in Marina Oswald and her children so that they were living with her in 1963. Famously, Ruth and her husband Michael Payne became the star witnesses for the Warren Commission as they issued the official word on the assassination of President Kennedy that it was the work of one lone nut named Lee Harvey Oswald for no discernible reason before this lone nut was killed by another lone nut named Jack Ruby, also for no reason. Max Good is going to talk about all this with us, and specifically about The Assassination and Mrs. Payne, his new film on the subject, which features Ruth Payne herself, along with a number of other people that you may be familiar with, like Peter Dale Scott, Max Holland, Gerald Posner, Priscilla Johnson McMillan, and Vincent Salandria. Max and I are joined by historian and author James Diogenio, who was also featured in the documentary. Jim probably needs no introduction here, but I'll give the short version. He is the screenwriter and co-creator of Oliver Stone's JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, as well as JFK Destiny Betrayed, the four-hour cut of the film, which is now available for digital purchase. And he is the author of, most recently, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today. Max Good, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, great to be here. And Jim Eugenio, I really appreciate you being here as well. Thank you, Aaron. We're talking about Ruth Payne and Max Good. You have just produced a compelling, a very well done new documentary film on Ruth Payne called The Assassination and Mrs. Payne. What motivated you to get started on this project? And when did it begin? How did this all start? Well, I, I had a friend uh, about 15 years ago who, who was, was big into the JFK assassination, and, and he would tell me some things about it. I, I never, you know, got, was that interested. But uh, at some point, he, he recommended this book, JFK and the Unspeakable. Uh, and I read that book in 2008 or something. and. Uh, you know, it was, it's an amazing book, obviously. And anybody who's, who's involved with this stuff, uh, knows that book. Um, but, uh, that was the first time I'd ever heard of the pains and it's, it seemed like this, this whole new aspect of the assassination. It's just piling things on. Oh, wow. Even the people Oswald was staying with had connections to the CIA. Uh, it was almost hard to believe uh, that it could be that blatant. Uh, but also, uh, I, you know, I, I like to verify things for myself. I don't, I don't believe everything I read. And uh, I heard that Ruth Payne lived near me uh, in Santa Rosa. I live in the Bay Area, so it's about an hour away. Uh, and uh, I was actually going to grad school in. 2014 for documentary. And this, this was one of the projects that I had on my list. You know, maybe I could get Ruth Payne to do a little film with me. So I started emailing her, talking to her on the phone. And, you know, I was open with her that I, I wanted to explore some of these accusations and give her a chance to uh, give her side of the story. Uh, and, you know, she's, she's very open. She's done interviews with all kinds of people uh david talbot 
Russ Baker, all kinds of people have talked to her. Uh, so originally I made a 20 minute short film. That was my thesis film in, in grad school. Uh, and then I knew the story deserved to be a feature. Uh, you know, this, it's an amazing story and you just, you need time to explain it all. So I immediately started working on the feature length after that. Uh, and it took a little longer than I expected. Uh, here we are seven years after I started and the movie is done. So has she seen the film? Uh, what does she think about it if she has? Well, last time I spoke to Ruth was, I think, in 2019 in Dallas. And she came out and, and gave some talks out there. Uh, and she, she told me that she's done, she's done doing interviews and she, she doesn't really want to participate in my project anymore. I think she feels like it's, it's giving too much credence to the suspicions. Uh, so I, I've left her alone since then. I don't, I don't want to harass her. I don't want to instigate anything. And she also turns 90 this year. I, I want to respect the fact that, you know, she's, she's pretty up there in years and I don't, I, I, I don't want to anger her. Uh, so I, I haven't, I haven't contacted her. I don't know if she's seen the film. Uh, it's possible. It's, it's uh, somebody's, I'm, I know she, people have been telling her about it and it's quite possible that she's seen it. Yeah, I would, I would, it would be interesting to know what she thinks about it because I didn't find it. I, f I found it to be even handed, very even handed. Like she comes across not, she doesn't, you didn't make her come across badly. So in that regard, I would be really curious to see what she has to say. Although apparently, as you say, she might be thinking you gave too much airtime to other sort of critical voices, but you know, how much, you know, what do you expect her to say? Of course, she's going to say that. Uh, Jim, you you know this case uh, backwards and forwards, uh, at least as much as anybody can. And uh, Ruth Payne has long been a notable character in the uh, assassination that, that researchers have focused on. Why is that? I mean, on the surface, she's this nice Quaker lady who just wanted to learn a foreign language to you know help help make the world a better place and so on. Well, Max began his film uh, at a very propitious time for this subject matter because up until about the mid-1990s, there really wasn't a heck of a lot written about the pains. Um, you had Sylvia Marr who wrote uh, about maybe six pages about the pains. Mark Lane wrote like a half a page. All right. But in the mid 1990s, a female lawyer from Florida, Carol Hewitt, who was interested in the Kennedy case, began really investigating Ruth and Michael Payne. She had a couple of helpers, Barbara LaMonica and Steve Jones. And they did an eight-part series for Pro Magazine, all right, which we're going to repost when my, the first part of my review comes up, all right? I'm going to do a two-part review of Max's film, all right? 
that investigation was the first real dissection of Ruth and Michael Payne ever in the literature. Then George Michael Levica, who had written a previous book on the Kennedy case called And We Are All Mortal, he issued another book, which the focus of the book was Alan Dulles and his use of liberal religious denominations for the use of espionage and spying purposes. And of course, because the Paines were Quakers and Unitarians, that would have fallen under his preview, which it did. And he wrote about 20 pages on the Paines in his book. Okay. Now, Max is talking about Jim Douglas. And Douglas's book, I think, came out around the same time that Evica's book came out. All right. So Max, for the first, Max had a really good launching pad, okay, to go ahead and go into this subject. I'll give you just one example. Steve Jones got Marina Oswald's grand jury testimony from the Garrison investigation, okay? And Garrison is trying to figure out why were you so chummy with Ruth Payne for about seven or eight months in 1963 from the spring to the fall? Then after the assassination, suddenly she's gone. Okay. And Marina says, words of the effect, the Secret Service told me I should not be associating with Ruth Payne because it was too obvious that she sympathized with the CIA. Okay. So then, so then Andrew Chambra, who's Garrison's assistant, he's trying to wrap this up. Okay. And put it in a, a, with a, with a box with a bow on it. And he says, so it was definitely your impression that she was associated with the CIA. The secret service told you this It was a one word answer. Yes. Okay. Now, Ruth's defenders have gone all spastic over Max's film, all right, you know, and it's gotten utterly ridiculous, you know, some of the things that they've they've come up with. And, and, and I believe, I believe that my, imp after watching Max's film, my first impression, and I, I saw the earlier cut, this is much better than the, er the earlier cut that I saw, uh, my impression is after I'm reading it, why the hell did it take 59 years to come up with a movie about Ruth and Michael Payne? You know, because there there was really uh, so, you know, and, and Sylvia Marr had the harshest judgment of of Ruth Payne of the early critics. She said words of the effect that Ruth Payne is quite devious and it's very clear that she has an animus for Lee Harvey Oswald. Therefore, she cannot be really trusted, okay, as a witness. Now, why is that important, Aaron? Because who was the most prominent witness for the Warren Commission? The most prominent witnesses for the Warren Commission were Ruth and Michael Payne. 6,000, over 6,000 questions, all right? Take, now, take a look how many questions Thornton Boswell asks, is answering. Thornton Boswell, one of the pathologists over Kennedy's body that night at Bethesda, 
gets asked about 20 questions. Ruth and Michael Payne get asked 6,000 questions. All right. And also when, when Ruth kind of like uh, Albert Jenner is one of the lawyers who questions her, she, he like, she like leads him into places that she thinks he forgot. Well, aren't you going to ask me about that letter to the Russian embassy? You know? And I, and I have to tell you, this is one of the things that Carol came up with that I thought was just terrific. On Memorial Day weekend, 1963, Oswald and his wife are at the Payne household, okay? And allegedly, Lee was typing up a letter, okay, which he first drafted in longhand. All right, this ends up becoming the legendary letter to the Russian embassy, which I think arrives about November the 12th, okay, in Washington. And this is supposed to be about Oswald's trip to Mexico City. There's a lot of problems with this. I mean, a lot, okay? All right, and I just want to go into one. Her first story for, this is what she did. She actually picked up his letter. Okay, and then she did a handwritten draft of the letter herself. Okay, all right. Now, her first excuse for p- picking up the letter was that I could read the first line, and I knew that he was lying. And then she, she, I think in Max's film, she goes, "Imagine that lying on my typewriter." Okay, <laughs> so this is the reason that obviously she had to give to Jenner. Well, here's the problem. If you read the first line of the letter, Oswald's not lying. According to the Warren Commission, he did go to Mexico City and he did meet with one of these guys in the Russian embassy. And you want to know the great thing about this? Jenner realizes that she flubbed her line. Okay. Well, he goes, wait a minute. Uh, I think we better go off the record. (laughs) And they stopped questioning her. See, that whole thing that she says he was lying about which is, I think, about the FBI uh, trying to track him down in Dallas. That isn't into the middle of, of the letter. Okay, so according to her story, she couldn't have been reading that. All right. Now, why is this so important? Why is this so very, very important? Because even in those early days, the Warren Commission was having a devil of a time trying to put Oswald in Mexico City. All right. And because they weren't getting any help from the CIA. All right. And they were getting blown off by the Mexican security forces down in Mexico. Okay. All right. So forensically speaking, this letter becomes important because if you go by Ruth Payne's story, it was in Oswald's hand. All right. Well, Ruth already did a copy herself, but uh, but at least one of them is supposed to be there. So this puts Oswald in Mexico City, which is a very important part of the story if you believe the Warren Commission. Now, I don't believe Oswald was in Mexico City. All right. So this is what, and, and, and Eddie Lopez and Danny Hardway, who did the 350-page report uh, for uh, the House Select Committee of Assassinations, they don't believe he was in Mexico City. All right. So this is why that letter is so important as well as the Walker note. We could talk about that for about a half an hour. Okay. And the backyard photographs, you could spend a week on those. 
Okay. But all of these come out of what Thomas Mellon called his book, uh, Mrs. Payne's Garage. Okay. So it becomes like the haven for all this incriminating evidence. And, and the problem is, as I wrote in my review, is that if these events did not happen, then what does that tell us about Ruth Payne? Okay, if Oswald wasn't in Mexico City, if Oswald didn't take a shot at Walker, which he didn't, okay, then what does this tell us about Ruth Payne? You know how bad it got? I, I think I left this out. The Secret Service, after Ruth tried to get the Walker note to Marina, you know, they wanted to return it to her because they thought it was hers. Okay, all right. So this is what I mean. The, you know, the Secret Service actually said that, uh, you know, we don't want you associating with her because it's so obvious that she's part of the CIA. And one last point about this. In her first interview with the Secret Service, they were begging Marina to tell them that Oswald was in Mexico City, and she refused. She would not tell him. He never said anything to me about Mexico City, either before or after he was there. Okay, it, they were these this, this agent, Charles Conkell, was with Marina for the first four days after she was detained by the Secret Service. And they they went to this hotel in the Dallas area. It got so bad that whenever the TV would go on about Oswald being in Mexico City, Marina would turn to the Secret Service agent and say, nope, he wasn't there. Because she, she knew that they were trying to goad her into saying that he was there. All right. Now, a very good part of Max's movie, and this is one of the things I want to give him a lot of credit for, is that he sets up the parallels between George DeMorenschild, Ruth and Michael Payne, and Priscilla Johnson. Because if you if you follow Oswald in that last year of his life from April of 1963, okay, George de is his first escort. He's the one who's responsible for passing uh, the Oswalds on to Ruth and Michael Payne. He then leaves the Dallas-Fort Worth area, goes to Haiti, ends up with about $300,000 in his bank account, okay? And then after... After the assassination, who replaces Ruth and Michael Payne? Well, it's Priscilla Johnson. Towards the end of his life, George DeMorenschild told Edward Epstein, okay, I would have never approached Oswald in a hundred years if J. Walton Moore had not told me to. J. Walton Moore was a CIA station chief, you know, in Dallas. Max in his film shows the documents in which the ARB declassified, and it says right there in black and white, Priscilla Johnson is a witting collaborator with the CIA. We don't have to tell her what stories to write about. She'll do them anyway. Okay. Now, one of the funniest parts of this whole story, I don't think Max put it in this film. It wasn't just Ruth Payne who was uncovering so-called evidence that Oswald is in Mexico City. Priscilla Johnson was also. This is in August of 1963. She supposedly uh, discovers tickets uh, that Oswald took down there with him. And Wesley Liebler, 
one of the lawyers on the Warren Commission said sort of like, what the hell is going on here? We've got the Dallas police. We've got the FBI. We've got the Secret Service going over all of Oswald's possessions. And here, eight months later, this woman reporter now discovers evidence that Oswald was in Mexico City. I mean, come on, who's going to believe this stuff? All right. So in Max's film, that's a very I've expressed this much more overtly. He does it in a lot more subtle way. OK, to, that this parallelism with these between DeMorin Schelt, the Paines and Priscilla Johnson. Can that all be a coincidence? Can that all be a coincidence? I leave that up to the viewer. Seems like you I, I took a lot of pains with the film to be factual and to verify any claims and to give Ruth and her defenders a chance to respond. Uh, so, yeah, I, I want the audience to make up their own mind. I, I, I don't want to be too heavy handed about anything. And I, I tried to go into it with an open mind myself. Uh, you know, I was ready to debunk claims about Ruth if I if I could. Uh, but I, I look at it as a spectrum in terms of of Ruth's innocence or guilt. You know, she, on the one hand, you could say there was no conspiracy and Ruth is completely innocent <laughs> by definition. Uh, on the other hand, you could say Ruth was actually involved in the assassination plot. And she knew the master plan was to kill JFK. Uh, now in between those, those two poles, there's, there's a lot of subtlety. You can, you can say as people do, maybe Ruth didn't know what the master plan was and she was just a babysitter for the Oswalds or maybe Somebody asked Ruth to do a favor and, you know, befriend these these poor, uh, you know, people who came back from the Soviet Union to help them out, you know. Uh, and then with the evidence, some people might think that sh she planted it or created it. Other people may say, well, the FBI could have planted it and she just found it. Uh, so. There, there are a lot of different ways to look at this this thing, but as Jim says, the the number of co so-called coincidences and connections is is kind of staggering, and it makes a reasonable person very skeptical and suspicious that this was all on the up and up. Uh, so when when people try to claim, well, you're you're uh, you're defaming Ruth Payne. This this is a disgrace. There's nothing there. There's no there's no real evidence. Uh, I think that's that's ridiculous. And any rational person who looks who watches the film will at least understand that there are reasons to be suspicious of her. Whatever your conclusion is about her is up to you. And I'm I'm fine with people who think she's innocent. I'm fine with people 
who think she's guilty. I, I want people to learn the actual facts and go through a critical thinking process and decide for themselves. That's that's the whole point. That's that's kind of the the meta theme of this film for me is is critical thinking and epistemology and truth and you know whether we can all you know actually understand history and uh, have a democracy here. <laughs> Yeah, the Mexico City angle and the fact that she provided evidence for that is very uh, pregnant with implication because if by the Warren Commission account, Oswald goes to Mexico City and essentially accomplishes nothing, right? I mean, he doesn't, there's no connection with the Russians, there's no connection with the Cubans, he just goes there. And yet we know that the impact of the Mexico City paper trail or story as it was presented to people was used to guarantee a cover-up because it was it itself was pregnant with implication that Oswald had been working with the Russians and that there was a a Soviet hand behind the assassination which could lead to world war nuclear war so of all the strange things that you could do as a you know lone nut assassin to go around and like act in such a way as to guarantee a cover-up, which we do know that like people went into it with the idea like, yeah, we need to cover, we need to like cover this up. We need to say Oswald did it because it could lead to nuclear war that could kill everyone. But the, so her finding this letter or handwriting it is, which just to lay this out that he went to Mexico city, but he's making all these things up about it. But that information being so historically important, even though, it was really all made up and not really of consequence in and of itself. It is, uh, it, it seems circumstantially so implausible that I, I think that, you know, I, I don't, I think that it just, yes, somebody could say, well, that doesn't prove anything. That's technically true, but it is so bizarre. That, that aspect of it is so bizarre as is her taking them in and so on. So there's so much there. Um, before we before we talk about any more of those bizarre Ruth Payne coincidences and findings and her interventions, I mean, because as Jim says, there are various points where the case against Oswald is, is very thin. And then you have Ruth Payne ex machina or whatever, right? Ruth Payne just, oh, well, look at this. And then as you also point out, the Priscilla Johnson, um, you know, discovering tickets like that as evidence is also very, very, very strange. Aaron, if, 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 if I beg to interrupt for a minute, the amazing thing about the Walker note is that, is that the entire seven and a half months that the Dallas police investigated that shooting, Oswald was never a suspect at all, period. Okay. So with the pains, uh, Carol Hewitt said that, the person who really accused Oswald for the first time in the press was Michael Payne. And she said that she had a copy of the Houston Post, uh, I believe on the 23rd. All right. Then a few days later, out comes the, this book, okay, that Ruth tries to get to Marina through the Secret Service. And in it, you have the so-called Walker note, okay? Now, the note doesn't have anything to do with it. It doesn't say Walker's name, but it, over time, it has been concluded that um, 
these were instructions that uh, Lee was uh, leaving for Marina in case he got into some trouble. And people then came to say, well, it must have been the Walker shooting. Here's the problem with the Walker shooting. Okay. Forensically, it's completely bogus because the bullet that they found uh, out of Walker's home did not match the rifle that Oswald allegedly had at that time. All right. And the only witness to the crime, a little kid named Kirk Coleman, about 15 years old, he managed to get a look at the two people who were involved. They drove off in separate cars. A, he said neither of them looked like Oswald. B, Oswald didn't drive. Okay. So this is what I mean. You know, if, if, if you look at this from a forensic point of view, okay, they're producing evidence of a dubious event. Okay. And so, again, I asked a question. Is that just a coincidence? Is that, is that, is it? I mean, you know, when, when the Dallas police don't say one word about Oswald and the Walker shooting in seven and a half months, okay, and then suddenly out of nowhere, the pains produce evidence that he was involved in it, you know, then, you know, that should make people think a little bit. And Oswald, the Walker is, okay, Oswald, by all accounts, does not drive. Walker lives in a place you would not be able to reach. I mean, it, it, is this is the idea that Oswald was on foot that he was on a horseback? That he, <laughs> the, I think the Warren Commission said he took a bus. How do you take a bus with a rifle and nobody sees you? Okay, and well, didn't, didn't Priscilla Johnson McMillan say he he buried the rifle or something? Right, right. He buried the rifle in dirt. Okay, and covered it with leaves afterwards. All right. Uh, you know, the, the, the Walker shooting is so much people don't concentrate in on that much because everybody concentrates on Kennedy, Connolly and Tippett. But Gerald McKnight did a couple of uh, chapters on the Walker shooting in his book, Breach of Trust. And he does a very good job of showing how, you know, how this bullet went from a 30 odd six lead uh, lead looking bullet uh to a 6.5 copper coated uh you know manicure carcano slug all right uh so you know this is why i've always been suspicious of this whole thing about the walker note you know um and plus if i remember correctly the fbi could not take any fingerprints off that document and match them to either Lee or Marina Oswald. All right. So those are some, those are some of the very serious problems. Okay. With uh, the pains. Now, another thing that, that Max brings out in his film, which I think is very important is that almost from the beginning, the pains were responsible for this mantra about Oswald. In other words, Lee was a small man in history. President Kennedy was a giant in history. Okay. And so this was Lee's way of becoming a big man in history. And by the way, that, that is the same mantra that Priscilla Johnson is going to use later on, you know, now, 
look, if that was the whole basis, then why did Oswald never say that he killed Kennedy? In fact, he said the opposite. Right. He said, I'm just a patsy, you know? <clears throat> yeah. Um, one thing I'd like to bring up about, about the Walker shooting, why, why it's so important, people need to understand, is that it's this precedent for Oswald being capable of assassinating somebody. So when people hear about this event that supposedly happened, Oswald took a shot at Walker, tried to kill him, they kind of immediately connect that with JFK and say, oh, it's obvious, he's guilty. He, he tried to shoot this, this one guy, he must have killed JFK. Same thing with the Tippett shooting. So people hear, oh, he killed a police officer, he must be guilty. So you got to understand that those, those two events also have other interpretations. And there's, there's a counter argument to the official story. And there's a lot of evidence, as Jim has told us, uh, to support questioning, you know, those contentions that Oswald shot a police officer and took a shot at Walker. Um, and there's, these stories like this stick in people's minds. And there's a guy I interviewed in Dealey Plaza. And he says, it's in the film. He, sa he says, oh, Oswald took a shot at some general a few months before. He's guilty. Uh, and that's, that's the way people think. And you, you hear these stories like uh, from Priscilla Johnson McMillan, Oswald left his wedding ring in a cup on the dresser or something before you know, the, the morning of the assassination and people hear that and they say, he's guilty, you know? Uh, <laughs> so you got to wonder about, about these, these little snippets that are, are trying to convince people a certain way. And, and it's kind of shorthand for Oswald's guilty. It's obvious. Mm. Well, Priscilla Johnson is also responsible for the famous, uh, light being on in the garage. If you remember this one, uh, in her book, Marina and Lee, um, she, she says that Ruth went down into the garage the night before the assassination and the light was on. This is supposed to, we're supposed to believe that Oswald went down, picked up his rifle and I guess fell asleep with it in his arms right next to his wife and his wife never noticed that the rifle was there. Okay. So, so, but later as Carol Hewitt said, the problem with that story is Marina said that Lee was already asleep in bed that night. He came out to the paint household that night before. All right. And he had dozed off. Okay. Cause he had to wake up early to go to work the next day. So Whoever let that light on is probably Michael, because he used to come back and pick up some of the tools he had in the garage. It was probably him. Now, speaking of Michael Payne, I mentioned earlier about Evica's book and how his book talks about how Alan Dulles used these re liberal um, religious denominations. Like, for example, when he used Noel Field after World War II. Well, Michael Payne was at a restaurant across the street from SMU 
in early part of 1963, okay, he was trying to get into arguments with students about American policy towards Cuba, okay? In these arguments, he would take the side of being a pro-Castro advocate, you know, that American policy towards Cuba was wrong, okay, and we should have a live and let live kind of attitude, a modus vivendi, okay, with Castro, all right? Now, to do something like that in Dallas, in 1963 is about as odd as Oswald doing the similar thing in New Orleans, okay, in 1963. So what happened is that some of the students called the FBI, okay, and the FBI came down and they started interviewing some of the students that Michael Payne had talked to, all right? And if you can believe it, if you can believe it, it's true. They told the FBI that Michael Payne told them that, you know something, I've got this communist from Russia who's living in my house right now. And so obviously this was Michael Payne, okay, who was actually doing this stuff at this restaurant across the street from SMU. All right. Now, if we couple that with a couple of other things, one of them being the fact that as, as uh, Max shows in his film, that Ruth Payne was in Nicaragua, uh, I think around 1989, 1990, with a group called Pro Nica out of St. Petersburg, all right? And he interviewed Sue Wheaton, who was also there, and she was more or less a pro-Sandinista type, okay? And she said it was, when she encountered Ruth Payne, she got the distinct impression that Ruth and a couple of her cohorts were there to surveil what her group was actually doing. And she said there were instances of Ruth taking down notes of her going over to the bulletin board and memorizing the things on the bulletin board. She brought a guy with her, a guy named Sean Miller, uh, to a later meeting in which he was taking photographs. And they actually had an audio recording system. And Ruth mentioned that she knew people in the U.S. Embassy. Okay. So Sue Wheaton really got very, very suspicious about exactly what the heck Ruth was doing down there in Nicaragua, all right? Now, one last point to try and tie this thing together. One of the most provocative pieces of evidence about Ruth and Michael Payne is, and Max touches on this in his film, you know, if I would have, I would have gone further with it if I would have been him, was the Buddy Walters police report, I believe of the 23rd, okay? in which he said that he picked up some file folder boxes that he said were full of what he thought looked like Cuban sympathizers, okay? And he put them in the trunk of his car, all right, drove them down to the police station, and and if you... Now, listen, listen to what happens to this. This very provocative story 
What does a Warren Commission do? They put it in the speculations and rumor part of the Warren report saying that, no, this really didn't exist. Okay. And, and it disappeared and, and it's, it's a faulty story, et cetera. Okay. Now, in my opinion, those file cabinets or excuse me, file boxes, if those were Oswald's, he would not have brought him to Dallas with him because he was doing that kind of stuff in New Orleans. Okay. If he, if he was filing reports, which I don't believe he was that kind of an agent, but for the sake of argument, let's assume he was, all right, he would have left those with Guy Bannister in New Orleans before he left, okay? He wouldn't have brought them to Dallas. And of, of all things, leave them en route to Michael Payne's garage, all right? Okay, so Max, in his, when he was investigating this, and I thought this was one of the high points of the film, it turns out that Ruth has a friend with defense intelligence uh, services, and he does certain jobs. For her. <laughs> and one of them was to find these file boxes. And the guy, he takes off his hat. He shows us the hat. It says, it says defense intelligence services or security or whatever. Okay. And then he says, well, you know, Ruth really works a lot on this case. She has a whole bunch of books, okay, that she reads religiously, all right? And she has me do things like this for her. That one scene is worth the whole movie. Okay. You know, so how did you find that guy, Max? So his name is Joe Alisi and he reached out to me. He heard about the film and started contacting me through Facebook or something. Really nice guy. And he, he offered to, uh, to do an interview. Um, and very open uh he's he's a major collector he also bought oswald's or drill or or michael payne's drill press that oswald used to drill a hole through a peso or or some some something like that uh he he owns that in his garage and he's got a bunch of other he's a he's a collector of memorabilia um but uh he's an interesting character uh you know, he was he was open with this. He showed me his placard that says Defense Investigative Service. And that's his that was his career. He worked for the government on security clearances. So he was a guy who would investigate people, interview them to hand out security clearances. He's gotten a lot of memorabilia from Ruth. He, she gave him her whole box of documents that she got through the Freedom of Information Act. She, she got the documents about herself <laughs> sent to her from the FBI. Um, and this guy now, now owns it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> um, I haven't heard from him in a while. Uh, I'd be curious. He also escorted Ruth to Dallas in 2019 when she was 
going to do a talk and a Q and A for uh, that movie, uh, that movie involving Burt Griffin as sort of a defending oh, the Warren Commission. Yeah, it was a celebration of the Warren Commission. Yeah, right. the truth is the only client. I think right, is the name something of the movie, like that. Yeah, where for the Q and A after the movie, the panel on the stage included the CIA's chief historian, uh, Bert Griffin, a lawyer for the Warren Commission, Ruth Payne, uh, who else? There was another all-star uh, character on there, the guy who was... Oh, I think Howard Willens. Howard Willens, and the guy responsible for the uh, treason posters. or the, the, Oh, they was, got him, too? Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> God. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he was the guy who was friends with General Walker, right? Like a close associate. But it wasn't Walker. He was a Bircher or something, right? Is that right? I, I, I forget his name. I don't, I don't want to guess okay. what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't remember either, but I know who you're speaking of. Just a quick interjection here. The John Birch Society guy who made those JFK wanted for treason posters in Dallas was named Robert Surrey. He was an aide to the ultra-right-wing General Edwin Walker. This guy, Joe, Joe Alisi, is an interesting character. I really appreciate that he did the interview. And he, um, he's, he's one of the people who, who says he thinks there probably was a conspiracy, but he doesn't think the pains had any role or that they're dishonest at all. And mm-hmm. they're, that's a rare position you'll find, but there's, there are a few people out there who are, are representing that. What about an, another interesting part of the movie was Max's phone call to Sylvia Hoke. All right. Now, just in case you don't know who Sylvia Hoke was. All right. Sylvia Hoke is Ruth Payne's sister. Okay, her real name is Sylvia Hyde Hoke. All right. And there had always been a lot of swirling controversy about this relative of Ruth's Payne's. In fact, if you look at Jim Garrison's grand jury hearings, Ruth was there. And this is one of the things that Garrison was trying to hone in on. Okay. Who does your sister work for? Because we've been trying to find out for a long time and they won't, they won't tell us who she works for. All right. Ruth says words of the effect that she didn't know. Okay. Now, why is that so interesting? Because in the summer of 1963, as Ruth is doing this, semi cross country trip okay extending all the way to northeast united states she comes down to the maryland area and she spent like a week and a half with her sister okay and her husband okay who who's an interesting character in and of himself and so we're supposed to believe that staying there for a week and a half she never learned who her sister was working for or with, all right? And in fact, what makes us even more odd, she couldn't even remember the state that she lived in, all right? 
Now, one way to look at that is, okay, maybe she's just not a curious person, or maybe she just didn't realize where she was. Another way to look at it, of course, is she doesn't want to give Garrison the right information. Okay. Well, it turns out that Sylvia Hoke worked for the CIA and she and Greg Parker in his book, Lee Harvey Oswald's Cold War, actually shows a document. She worked on a joint CIA Air Force project for approximately seven years. All right. Uh, Carol Hewitt actually found another document. All right. In which a CIA admits that Sylvia Hoke worked for them. Okay. And it's it's in her pro magazine article. All right. Now, what makes that interesting is that, of course, Ruth Payne's father worked for USAID, Agency for International Development, which, as everyone knows, or I hope they know, was clearly tied uh, to the Central Intelligence Agency. They served as a cover operation, you know, in many situations for the CIA. And her brother-in-law also was tied in with USAID, okay, Uh, Mr. Hoke, all right? And it turns out that if you look at this in the worst possible way, Ruth was actually being disingenuous with Garrison because she actually led him into a wrong area, okay, as to where Sylvia Hoke was living. Because I had some guy, one of the advantages of doing Black Op Radio is you have very curious listeners who help you in certain points, all right? She led Garrison on to believe that she lived in Virginia. It turns out that this guy found a news story in 1964 that the hoax actually lived in Maryland, okay, at the time, all right? So I, 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 you have, oh, I forgot the big one. <laughs> How could I forget this? Ruth Forbes Young, Michael Payne's mother, was the best of friends with Mary Bancroft. Mary Bancroft, of course, was a girlfriend of Alan Dulles. And at the same time, she was an agent for Alan Dulles. Okay. And in the film, Bill Simpich is one of the talking heads in the film, you know, and he makes the rather logical kind of uh, speculation that it might have been Mary Bancroft who tipped off Alan Dulles. All right. Uh, you know, this could be a very interesting couple for you to uh, uh, for you to employ, all right? And so all these ties about swirling around Ruth and Michael Payne, okay? These were not in the Warren report, okay? These were not in the Warren Commission volumes either, all right? Uh, and this shows you just how poor the investigation of Ruth and Michael Payne was, even though, even though, as Max showed in one of his Twitter, uh, one of his Twitter messages, you know, that this very, very high class couple, okay, um, 
told the FBI out of nowhere that they should exquisitely trust the pains because they are the highest character caliber. Okay. Well, what's so funny about that affidavit, okay, is that the guy's father was best of friends with Alan Dulles. All right. They worked together in the crusade for freedom and a couple of other CIA projects that Alan ran. Okay. Uh, so all of, again, again, is this all coincidence? Is, is it just a coincidence that Ruth goes to Nashon Island that summer by herself, even though the Nashon Island is essentially owned by the Forbes family and that her, her husband, Michael, has a $300,000 trust fund from the Forbes family? And as she comes down from Nashon Island, she goes to visit her sister who works for the CIA. And then to top it all off, she goes down to New Orleans and she picks up Marina Oswald. All right. This is supposed to have been for the Warren Commission. This is supposed to be a spontaneous thing. When the FBI interviewed the witnesses that she visited that summer, she told them that this is what she was going to do. Okay. At the end of her visit. Okay. Of their visitations that summer. So what you have here with her picking up Marina Oswald is the fulfillment of her April 7th letter that she says she never mailed, okay, where she invites Marina to come live with her. Now, here's my question about that. The first time Ruth and Marina met together was in the latter part of March, okay? I believe it was like March 20th, all right? Three weeks later, She's essentially writing a letter to Marina, inviting her to come live with her. Okay. And then, of course, this becomes a fact after New Orleans. And this, of course, separates Marina from Lee with all of Oswald's, well, not all of them, but most of his possessions in the garage of Ruth and Michael Payne. All right. And then, of course, when the police get there, she gives them the run of the house. All right. And they're there for two days. One last point, one last evidentiary point. The famous backyard photographs that was used by Life magazine to incriminate uh, Oswald. All right. That imperial reflex camera is not on either of the Dallas police inventory lists, either the day of or the day after the assassination. So they had the photographs, but none of the cameras they had would take the photograph. So the problem became, how do we connect the photographs to a camera that will not take the pictures? Well. Ruth Payne, again, comes to the rescue <laughs> about, about three or four weeks after the Dallas police had searched the entire house, okay? She comes up with the camera, and she gives it to Robert Oswald. And Robert Oswald, at that time, was housing 
Marina. Okay. The Dallas police, again, this very much puzzled the Dallas police. Okay. And they said, you know, as it would any police captain, how the hell did you guys miss that camera? Because it wasn't one of these tiny little, you know, uh, foreign jobs. It was sort of like about this big. All right. And you had to look down into it in an irregular way. You couldn't do one of these. You had to do it like this. You had to hold it in your lap. Okay. So the police actually did an internal investigation of what the heck happened. All right. And four of the five police who were involved in the search said that, yes, we searched every box in that home. Okay. I don't know how the hell this happened. Okay. You know, so again, so here's another instance where you have Ruth Payne bringing in an exhibit that helps the Dallas police incriminate Oswald. Again, you know, my, my whole attitude towards this is how many coincidences are you going to swallow? You know, I mean, as, as Ian Fleming said, you know, once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. Okay. So that's one way to look at this whole thing. Yeah. Oh, one other thing. One of the other things that I wish Max would have put in this film, I'm going to let him talk about this. Why don't you tell him the story about Bert Hootkins? William Hootkins was an actor who was in Star Wars. He played uh, Jet Porkins, one of the, uh, like the starfighter. The, he, know, gets fighter. Blown, he gets blown up, I think. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a large uh, fighter pilot. Um, and he, he, was, he was a great actor, stage actor. So he uh, was Ruth Payne's only Russian student when he was 14 or 15. And there is a theory because there, there are reports that Oswald went to the local barber in Irving, Texas, where, where Ruth lived, um, with a 14-year-old boy who fits the description of, of Hootkins. Uh, and Greg, the researcher Greg Parker has, has developed uh, this, this research. And he believes that this boy who Oswald came into the barber with uh, was Hootkins and they were doing some intelligence work themselves with a sort of instigating uh, inflammatory conversations about, you know, communism and one world government and, and stuff uh, kind of similar to, what it sounded like Michael Payne was doing uh, with Cuba. Um, and so this theory is that Hootkins was, was maybe part of some young anti-communist league. And he was kind of doing intelligence work uh, with Oswald. Um, and, and maybe, maybe Ruth too. That's, that's one of the questions. Uh, it's a it's a nice little footnote to the story. I tried to confirm this. I I was emailing with Hootkins' widow, trying to get an idea if he was the kind of guy who would have been 
in an anti-communist group in high school. Um, and she never really answered my question. And, uh, well, the, the, I, the most important, the most interesting part of the story is that Hoopkins went with Oswald the first couple of times to Cliff Shastine's barbershop. But then, and he didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. But then about three or four days before the assassination, he went there by himself without Oswald. Okay. And this is when he breaks out in this rant about, you know, the benefits of a one world government and how there's too many poor people in the United States, et cetera. And Cliff Justine is flabbergasted that he's ranting like this, you know, where he's never said a word before. All right. And so the FBI knew about this. They knew about this. Okay. And so I'm going to, I'm going to put this in my review. All right. Because in my opinion, in my opinion, she had Hootkin's contact information in her address book. All right. And this is, you know, Ruth always wanted to talk about things like the Walker note and the Russian embassy letter. She didn't want to talk about this. Okay. You know, so I believe that's a really, really interesting. I think Greg did some very outstanding work on this. All right. And the principal of the school was involved with these right-wing activities. Okay. At a prior uh, position he had. Okay. So I think that's an utterly fascinating story. You know, um, and again, if I would have been, I probably would have included it because I, I think Gre Greg's a very good researcher. He's very meticulous. Okay. And a very honest guy, you know? Yeah. I, I, I interviewed Greg Parker over zoom. He, he lives in Australia. Right. I interviewed him, but it didn't, didn't make it into the final film. Uh, you know, zoom interviews don't always look so great. Uh, mm. but I, yeah, I appreciated his research. I wanted to go back to a couple things we talked about. Um, the the couple you mentioned who were vouching for the pains were Fred and Nancy Osborne. If anybody right. wants to look into that, and uh, Fred Osborne's father was Frederick Osborne, who was very well connected. Part of he was a founding member of the American Eugenics Society, um, and yeah, if anybody wants to look into that, they can. Uh, also, I just wanted to summarize the Payne family CIA links uh, quickly. So we know that Ruth's sister worked for the CIA. That's confirmed. Uh, that's not disputed. Um, her father, he worked for USAID, did a, did a lot of work in Latin America. And there is a document that says that he was recruited for covert use by the CIA in Vietnam for, 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 you know, use in Vietnam in 1957. So we know he was at least recruited at it, the document says he was not used. Uh, and then Ruth's sister's husband, John Hoke also worked for USAID. His applications to work for the CIA were declassified in 2017. 
And a lot of those pages are unreadable, but from, from what I can gather from those documents, he was never hired according to those documents, never hired by the CIA, but he did apply for work. Um, and then of course, Ruth's mother-in-law. So we have sister, father, brother-in-law and mother-in-law uh, with some connection to the CIA. Uh, that her, her mother-in-law was Michael's mother, whose her name was Ruth, Ruth Forbes or Ruth Forbes Payne Young. She had two husbands. Um, and she's the one with the, the connection to Alan Dulles through one of her best friends, Mary Bancroft. Right. And Alan Dulles was in Dallas towards the end of October, okay, of 1963. All right. Um, he ostensibly, he was promoting his book. All right. Uh, and he made a comment about this, which again, if I'd have been Max, I would have included it in the film. Okay. You know, those, those nutty researchers would have a field day <laughs> if they knew that I was best friends with Michael Payne's words, the effect with Michael Payne's mother. And I was in Dallas three weeks before the assassination. All right. Great sense of humor Alan had, didn't he? he... <laughs> yeah. The, the thing with the film is I, I could not include every detail. You know, I was trying to watch, make it. No, watch, you, I mean, you've been working film. on this thing for so long. <laughs> to give you an example, yeah. just me, he was at my house and I got so sick and tired sitting in a chair that we went to two different restaurants afterwards i must have been there eight hours with the guy okay you know, so <laughs> yeah, but I, yeah. I i i did get a nice five-figure check though <laughs> <laughs> yeah i we put jim through the ringer there in some of those interviews they were like three four hours long um but yeah i have, I have tons of material that that did not make the film um you know there's only so much detail you can process in a film and my my goal was, of course, to reach people who who don't know much about this, uh, who mm, you know might be overwhelmed by some of the minutia in the case. And so I, you know, it was always a balance between hard data and evidence and you know counter arguments and and the bigger picture and uh, trying trying to keep the audience's interest. So if we accept, for the sake of argument and maybe for the sake of common sense, if we accept that Ruth had to have wittingly been part of the cover-up and probably unwittingly or, or, or wittingly part of the plot, especially with like the getting, getting uh, facilitating Oswald's actually being at the Texas School Book Depository uh, when he could have had other job opportunities that would have been more lucrative. She had a, a key role in actually putting him there in the first place. Um, is there any way that, I mean, is it possible to think that she may have been in something like the position of uh, Russell, Senator Russell or, or Earl Warren, where she was encouraged to go along with this or that it could lead to nuclear disaster otherwise? I mean, is there any way to like look at all of these 
pieces of that that point to Ruth to Ruth's role in the plot and and or the co- and definitely the cover up. Is is there any way to is there any mitigating way to 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 to, to think of this possibly or or what? What do you, either of you, do you have any insight into this or any thoughts on this? Is it, is it, is it possible to, is there anything that makes her less guilty? Is there well, anything that makes her less guilty? If, if she had participated in the plot, can you even contrive a, a, a something like Earl Warren? You kind of think, well, if it's between, I mean, even, well, look, even Salandry, even Vince Salandria later said, I'm sympathetic to the people for covering this up because. It could have led to nuclear war and killed us all. I have a hard time arguing with that logic to a large extent. So is there is there any way we can think of Ruth but, as but Aaron, in that Aaron, way? That you know you know what that's based on, don't you? That that's based on Johnson believing the CIA stuff coming out of Mexico City. All right, that's where he got this whole idea supposedly. All right, now if you don't believe Oswald was ever in Mexico City, then that ends up being a cover story. You know, and, you know, now, as, as far as your question goes. In my opinion, it's too late to come to any uh, tangible conclusions about Ruth and Michael Payne, because it's been it was ignored for over 30 years. I shouldn't say ignored, but it was downplayed. You know, all these people thought that, oh, what a good Samaritan couple they were, you know, taking in these poor Oswald people. You know, et cetera. And, and I have to say, though, even Rich, Richard Russell, who looks better and better as time goes on and this whole Warren Commission thing, he even commented on that at one of the early executive session hearings. He said, and then you have this pain couple. And he says words of the effect, you know, they have to be the good Samaritans to end all good Samaritans. OK, <laughs> So, you know, this is what we're left with. You know, were they really the kindly Quaker Unitarian couple or was there more of a kind of foreboding, you know, sinister side to this? And, you know, I, I give Max a lot of credit is that he he finally asked these questions, but it's too late now, I believe, to come to any definite conclusions about, you know, what their role, if any, you know, was in the murder of John F. Kennedy. Likewise, I cannot, as you point out, the Mexico business is sort of the pretext that was presented to Russell and Earl Warren. And so that sort of works for them. But for Ruth, because she was so integral in doing that, it becomes even harder to think of a scenario where that that would justify that or explain that away. So I'm I'm just trying to think if there's any way you can strain to like explain these in some sort of benign way. I personally can't. I don't know what what Max, as you look back on on everything that you did here with this, I mean, do you want to do you want to comment on whether there's any mitigating factors? You know, that's for for Ruth perhaps to have been a, a conspirator, but maybe for some other reason that's cool. But maybe more significantly, what should you what what do you think is the significance of Ruth Payne? Is she just a historical footnote? Or do you think she's she's somehow as symbolic of more than that or or or, or having having gone through all this, what is how do you see her and her her bit, her part in history? Yeah, I, I talked to Jim Douglas, the author of JFK, JFK and the Unspeakable, 
many times about this project. And he was very supportive, very interested in, in my progress. Uh, and he said that in some ways we are all roof pain. Uh, and I think he means that in the, the sort of the enigma of it and the possible denial uh, and, you know, the fact that we, we may all have multiple sides to ourselves um, and uh, we, we can't, you know, you, you can't just see somebody as one dimensional. Um, and yeah, you, you, you wonder if, if you, the, if you think she's guilty and she's, she's lying, there's also, could you somehow see it as that she's convinced herself that she's telling the truth? Or as you said, that maybe people who knew some of the inner details were given the story that, hey, this Oswald went to the Soviet Union, they turned him, he's a double agent, he came back and he killed the president for the Soviets. Uh, and in order to avert World War III, we're gonna cover it all up. Uh, that's, that's a possibility. Um, it seems logical that if there is this giant cover-up happening, people who have inside information would, could, could accept that excuse, that reason, that motivation for uh, participating. Um, but I have, I have a lot of empathy for Ruth Payne, no matter how guilty or innocent you see her. What she's been through is obviously pretty, pretty stressful. Uh, it's quite a burden she's had to carry. Uh, and I, I tried to express that in the film that, that I, I have respect for her, no matter how guilty she might be. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I think we shouldn't, shouldn't demonize people. Um, but you shouldn't, you also shouldn't, give them a pass. You shouldn't, shouldn't make them a saint. A lot of people have treated the pains like they're saints because they're Quaker, Unitarian, liberals, ACLU members. I think a lot of people on the left probably kind of related to them and thought, oh, these, these are good people. They would never do anything like that. They would never lie. There, there are people who kind of express that, that Ruth Payne just would never lie. It's not possible because she's a Quaker and she's kind of this model of goodness and honesty. Um, and I, I don't think anybody should be treated that way. We're all, we're all multifaceted and, and nobody is a saint. Max, doesn't she say in your film that Oliver Stone never approached her uh, concerning JFK? Yeah. I talked to Oliver about this and he said, Jim, we did try and talk to her. She declined the offer and you can take that to the bank. All right. 
Yeah, they give them fake names in the but the, but the actors they use to like to to be them are, are especially for Ruth. They 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 were very well cast and, and yeah, they were costumed. Like it really was like Ruth Payne, but not Ruth Payne. Yeah, Max, where are people going to be able to see this film? So everybody can see the film starting on June fourteenth on iTunes. Uh, that's that's our big launch. We've been doing some film festivals leading up to that and just did a screening in San Francisco last night. It, it went great. Uh, people are really enjoying the film. It's inspiring a lot of conversations and that's, that's what I wanted. So I, I hope everybody goes out and, and sees this film, whether you have an interest in the assassination or not. Uh, anybody who enjoys, you know, true crime documentaries or, any sort of intriguing, you know, <laughs> uh, mystery type type film should enjoy this. Um, and our website is jfkpain.com. We're also on uh, Twitter and Facebook. I will put those links in the show notes. And I do recommend this film. Uh, it, it is, it's fascinating. I found that after seeing it, her demeanor and affect stuck with me. I'm, I'm familiar with wealthy, waspy people in the mold of Ruth Payne and also have seen them, you know, capable of uh, duplicity in a, in a very sort of patrician way. So I, I'm used to this as an idea. And even I, e- even for me, seeing her speak and about, about these things, it was very incongruous with the facts that I knew to be the case. So it, it, to me, it's really, she's an amazing character study in that way. And the film as a whole is, is really well done. As Jim points out, there were a number of things that are explosive and fascinating that you could have put in there to the point that it would have been eight hours long, which is you know impossible. <laughs> so uh, the film is not, it's not overly long. It's, it's really well done. So I, I tip my cap to you for that. Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, I, I think the film's going to have have a good future here, and it's going to catch on because this this story is just so intriguing. Once once you hear about it, I mean, most people have never even heard of the pains, even if they they know a bit about the assassination. And then this just just you know the plot thickens <laughs> so much with 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 this particular angle. I agree. Uh, thank you very much, Max, for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. And Jim, uh, thank you. Your your insight here is always really valuable, so I really appreciate you being here as well. Oh, thank you both, gentlemen. hope that you all do check out The Assassination and Mrs. Payne when it becomes available on iTunes on June 14th. It offers the deepest ever look into Ruth Payne's historical role, but it's also a window into much more. I cannot but conclude that Ruth Payne has lied and lied and lied about this case. The circumstances of her blue blood family background, her connections to intelligence, and the ridiculous serendipity of all the materials she provided the Warren Commission It's impossible to explain away, especially considering how there's overwhelming evidence that Oswald did not kill JFK. Without going too deep down that rabbit hole, 
let's just focus on the sheer impossibility of the trajectory put forward in the magic bullet theory, the evidentiary problems with Commission Exhibit 399, which is the magic bullet itself, and the overwhelming evidence of a massive blowout to the back of Kennedy's head, indicating a shot from the front. In other words, a shot not from Oswald. James Douglas told Max, we are all Ruth Payne. I take this to mean that the U.S. as a whole has recoiled from the unspeakable, the deep immorality that propels the crimes of the imperial regime that we live under. By not confronting this systemic evil, by rationalizing our defaults and our complicity, we are implicated on some level. I do think that we all have to have some degree of denial. Civilization is built on it. I heard an anthropologist once talking about civilization as arguably being established when you find evidence of ancient peoples setting broken bones. In other words, devoting community resources to medical care and technology, as it were. But that is the happy side of the story. The dark side is the exploitation that allows a division of labor as well as the murderous territorial expansion that destroys or absorbs other peoples. This is why every civilization has to create myths to justify social hierarchy. The divine right of kings, Confucian ideas of piety and reciprocity, the master race, and so on. <clears throat> and there's American exceptionalism, which seems to be a nonsensical mismatch of Horatio Alger, warped Christianity, and liberal democratic fairy tales. All that said, I have to sort of part company with James Douglas and his synecdoche here. We are not all Ruth Payne because we are not actual conspirators in crimes that beget other crimes, like how the JFK assassination led to, among other things, 3.8 million dead in Vietnam and 1 million people tortured to death in Indonesia. And we're not all rich liberals like Ruth Payne. While they were out there cultivating these halos for themselves, other people were suffering immensely. Ruth and Michael Payne used to vacation on a private Forbes family island. Like the Cabots and the Delanos, the Forbes made their huge fortune in the opium trade. As Balzac wrote, behind every great fortune is a not-forgotten crime. Generations later, you have Ruth and Michael Payne, who generally don't have to sully themselves with such shady endeavors, but there's a lot of human misery that went into providing for their material comfort and security. With that in mind, think of how odd Ruth and Michael Payne's anti-communist activities were. What kind of society would make the idea of communal property into a Manichaean devil? That could only happen in a society where private property reigns supreme with divine sanction. So it would seem that someone like Ruth Payne, with anti-communism and liberal denial so deep-seated in her psyche, would be an ideal tool for someone like Alan Dulles. And sure enough, she's carried out her assignment for almost 60 years now. It's really something. You need to watch The Assassination in Mrs. Payne. Max Good is actually very objective and balanced in his approach to his subject. That said, given the facts of the case, Ruth Payne cannot not be lying, which makes her performance and the film as a whole very powerful and memorable. So do rent the film on iTunes when it drops on June 14, and also check out Max's website for the film, jfkpayne.com. Payne is spelled P-A-I-N-E. FYI, Max Good is not related to me. We talked for a while, but for some reason, we did not get around to our shared last name. Go figure. If you are a new American Exception listener, please consider subscribing on Patreon. 
We have a lot of material that you can't find anywhere else, offering deep dives into the dark side of the lawless U.S. empire. I want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering the audio and Casey Moore for his artwork. Thanks also to Mock Orange for providing our music. Mind the darkness, friends. <laughs>